You want to grab your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, to the very last verse of 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians 13, verse 14. I came to make a confession this morning. Uh, it's a big one. I'm embarrassed to admit, admit this, and so I need your grace and your mercy. And just remember, judge not, lest ye be judged. Whatever measure you use to judge me, the same measure will be used to judge you. Uh, so big confession today. Uh, I used to have a personalized license plate. <laughs> and nothing wrong with personalized license plate. You may be rocking one out in the parking lot this morning. Mine, unfortunately, said point guard, which was the position that I played on my high school basketball team. And I don't know why I felt obligated to tell everyone what position I played. Uh, on our team, but I did. If I could go back in time and shake 16-year-old Curtis and say, you don't know how many people are going to laugh at you when they drive by you, uh, you know, maybe I would change my mind. But, uh, but you're not going to judge me this morning because, you know, you may end up with a personalized license plate someday in the future because that's just kind of the culture we live in. It's a very personalized culture, a personalized society. You can personalize anything and everything. Like your phone, for example, if you have bought a phone in the last three years, I'm guessing you have personalized it in some way. You've downloaded apps that you want and you've deleted apps that you don't want. You may have bought a case that is personalized to you. It kind of shows off your unique identity, what you stand for. Maybe it says Nana on it or Papa or Hot Stuff. I don't know what is on your phone, but I'm guessing you've personalized it in some way. There's even some legislature right now kind of swir swirling around that potentially Congress will vote on to allow us to only pay for the cable channels that we want and to leave off the cable channels that we don't want. So we can even personalize our television. You can personalize your computer. You can buy this kind of computer if you do these kinds of things. And you can buy this kind of computer if you like to do these kinds of things. We personalize everything. So there aren't very many things in this life now where you can say this applies to everyone all the time for all time. In fact, kind of the motto of our culture is the opposite of that. You know, well, that's for you. That's not for them. That's your thing. That's your beliefs. That's what you think. That's not what they think. That's not their thing. They don't have to do what you do. It's kind of the motto of our culture. And so there aren't very many things that you can say this applies to everyone all the time. But that's what we're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now I want you to turn the page just a little to your right. Just one page to your right. You'll notice that that's the end of 2 Corinthians. The next page in your Bible is probably Galatians, which was another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. But this time he wrote it to some churches in the region of Galatia. So this is the very end of 2 Corinthians. He's wrapping up his letter. Now, ending a letter is much different than ending an email. You know, emails are often and they're immediate. 
And so you, you usually end those in a, a little bit more informal way than you would a handwritten letter. Like probably unless you're a 13-year-old girl, you're not ending you know, your handwritten letter with a smiley face or some kind of emoticon. You're not, just do, you're not doing that in a handwritten letter. You might do that in an email. You might do that in a text message. But you're not doing that in a handwritten letter. In a handwritten letter, what you say at the end is very, very important. Plus, you know, these letters are not often, and they're not immediate. It would have taken somebody at least two weeks to walk from the northern end of Greece, which Paul is probably writing this, and deliver it to the southern end of Greece, which is where Corinth was. So it takes two weeks and somebody to volunteer to travel that far. So whatever he says here in the end is going to carry some unusual weight. And what does he say? He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's start with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, if there is any confusion in the Trinity for you, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's probably going to be with the Holy Spirit. There's some mystery to him. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit as much as we talk about Jesus or as much as we talk about the Father. Plus, Jesus said in John chapter 3 that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it goes. So there is some mystery about him. But there are a lot of things in the scripture that we can know. So we'll just do a little review for us today just so we're all on the same page. When you read in the scripture in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is usually referred to as the Spirit of God. And you see him in the Old Testament uh, coming upon some select servants of God. Men like David, Gideon, even King Saul. People God raised up for a special purpose. Sometimes we see the Spirit of God coming upon them and unusually empowering them. In the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit coming and anointing Jesus at his baptism. You remember that story? Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, when he goes under the water, the heavens open up. The Father says uh, from heaven, this is my Son uh, with whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and anoints Jesus. And it and empowers Jesus to do the miracles that we see Jesus doing. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, he knows he's going to be... Uh, crucified and resurrected and ascend up into heaven. And so he tells his disciples, I'm actually going away, but that's a good thing for you because I'm going to send the counselor to you, the Holy Spirit. After Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he, he appears to the disciples. And it says in John chapter 20 that he breathes on them and then says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Then he gives them this mission to take his good news his life, death, resurrection, to the whole world, to every tribe, to every tongue, to every nation, to every people, and teach those people all that he had commanded them, and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he gives them this mission, amps them up, but then he says, but I want you to wait. I don't want you to go anywhere. I want you to stay right here in Jerusalem, because the Holy Spirit's going to descend on you. Not many days from now, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens on the day of Pentecost, which is actually today. Today is the Pentecost holiday, and these disciples were praying in an upper room on Pentecost. It says the Holy Spirit rushes upon them with the sound of a, a mighty wind. And these tongues of fire come down and land on the disciples. And they begin to speak languages that they do not know. And people around begin to hear in languages that they did know. And then it gathers up quite a crowd Peter steps up, now fully empowered by the Holy Spirit, delivers a message about Jesus, and many people believe in Jesus for the first time at the preaching of the gospel. 
And that's what we see through the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit unusually empowering these saints. Because Jesus said, the promise was that the Holy Spirit was going to be active. And he was going to be opening people's hearts and minds to Jesus. So if you have come to a point in your life where you realize that you had sin and that sin separated you from God, you can thank the Holy Spirit. He was at work in your life. If when you realize that you were separated from God and powerless to fix your own, uh, uh, own uh, situation and you turn to Jesus, you can thank the Holy Spirit. He was the one working in your life. The scripture says that when we believe in Jesus, when we cross that line of faith and we actually become followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is not just around us working, but he actually comes to live inside of us. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he begins to apply to us all the things that God has willed and Jesus purchased. So it's by the Holy Spirit that we are born again. It's by the Holy Spirit that we become sons and daughters of God. It's by the Holy Spirit that we can relate to God as a father. It's by the Holy Spirit, because of Jesus, that we can stand before God clean and pure, even though we are not clean and pure. Jesus has purchased for us, and the Holy Spirit has delivered for us justification. to Stand before God right, justified, and clean. It's by the Holy Spirit that we are sealed by God. Permanently marked forever His. And then there's a long list in the scriptures of the things that the Holy Spirit does for us day in and day out. And so I wanted to share them with you. You might want to write these down, although I'm probably not going to give you time enough to do it. This is what it says that the Holy Spirit is doing for us day in and day out. He leads and directs us, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. He speaks to us, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. He empowers us to cast out demons, Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. He anoints us to preach good news, Acts chapter 10, verse 38. He comforts us, John chapter 15, verse 26. He gives us spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He groans and intercedes for us, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. He produces spiritual fruit in us, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. He amens or testifies to the truth, 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. He provides power for preaching, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He provides power to fight and to defeat sin, Romans chapter 8, verse 13. He searches out the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. He speaks to churches, Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. He commissions believers into their ministry, Acts chapter 13, verse 4. He restrains us from doing the wrong thing, Acts chapter 16, verse 6. He convicts us when we do the wrong thing, John chapter 16, verse 8. He brings revelation from God, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. And he is still falling and coming upon believers, Acts chapter 10, verse 44. This is what it means to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So that's really the question. It's not do you know some things about the Holy Spirit. Not do you believe in the Holy Spirit. Because I'm guessing there are many A-list celebrities that you know some things about and believe exist. But I bet you don't have fellowship with those A-list celebrities. See, most of us just stop out of knowledge about the Holy Spirit and a belief in the Holy Spirit. But we have no fellowship we have no relationship. We're not seeing these things in our lives. We believe they exist. We believe that somehow other people have been able to attain these things, but it's not something that has really become a regular part of our lives. Do you have fellowship 
with the Holy Spirit? I'm guessing most of us don't. Most of us have a knowledge about the Holy Spirit to some degree, and most of us believe that He exists because the Scripture says He exists, and the pastor says He exists, and other people say He exists, and so I guess He exists. But most of us have just stopped there. We don't have an experience with Him. So what do we do if we we realize, oh, I don't think I have fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Well, you remember what Jesus said. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. I can make you this promise according to the scripture. That if you will with earnest and with faith and with perseverance seek fellowship with the Holy Spirit, God will deliver it to you. You're like, well, where do I start? Well, one simple thing that you can do is just take your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one today. They're out on this table in the lobby. You just pick one up as you leave. They're also not in Bibles to be embarrassed about. You know, there's some Bibles are kind of awkward looking. These are super cool. I've actually thought about stealing one myself. I didn't. And so you can just grab one and you take that Bible, or you take your Bible and you open it up. You can go online to some kind of Bible search engine. You just search every time that the word spirit with a capital S is used in the scripture. And just write down all the things that you have read in the scripture about the Holy Spirit. Then you take that list and you start praying that list into your life. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit still speaks. So Holy Spirit, speak to me. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit testifies to the truth. So testify to the truth in me. The Bible says that you, Holy Spirit, you convict of sin. So convict me of my sin. You take what the Scripture says. You seek out and you find what the Scripture says about the Holy Spirit. And you don't stop there. Then you ask what you find in the Scripture to be found in your life. And if you will ask with faith and you will ask with perseverance, you will know fellowship with the Holy Spirit. But then what else does it say at the end of 2 Corinthians? It says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, grace is used in a very specific way in the scriptures, uh, referring to our salvation, that we've not earned our salvation, but it's also referred to in a general way. Grace would be anything that we receive from God, which is exactly uh, what grace is. It's a definition of grace, that we receive something that we do not deserve. I want you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, he's been talking about the mystery of salvation. And if you don't feel like there's any mystery in salvation, that you've kind of got everything figured out, and then just ask yourself this question, whose role is more important in your salvation, your role or God's role? And you start chewing on that a while, and we say, well, you'll go this way, and then you kind of go this way. And, and you realize why Paul gets to the end of this chapter after he's talking about the mystery of salvation, and he just erupts in praise. Because who can understand a God who can weave together such a beautiful salvation. And this is his eruption of praise, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord 
Or who has been his counselor? And look at this verse, verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? What that means is that you've never offered God anything that put him in your debt. It means that God has never owed you one. It's like this past Christmas at Jackson School, he's seven years old. They had a little Christmas store in the cafeteria so that the kids could purchase a little presents for their family. And so one day we sent Jackson with just a few dollars and some change. And, and so he went shopping at his school cafeteria. And it was great. They'd wrapped it up for him. And, and he came home and he hid his presents. And Christmas morning, uh, you know, we had all the presents under the tree. And he went and got his. And, and he had one for Amanda. And he had one for Annabeth, our four-year-old daughter. And he had one for me. And we opened it up. He had so much joy in it. He gave me a pencil, which was great. His reasoning was is that I used a pencil or a pen a lot at work, and he thought that would be appropriate. It was so beautiful. It was so amazing. You know, I didn't give him a hard time. Like, seriously, a pencil? You know, like, I sent you with a dollar, and, and this, this couldn't have cost more than 25 cents, you know. Uh, no, I loved it. I, I totally received it. But, you know, Jackson couldn't offer me the pencil as a Christmas present and then say, okay, Dad, uh, I've given you something. Uh, now I need you to do something for me. Uh, I need you to uh, take me to Chuck E. Cheese. I've given you this pencil, and now I need you to take me to Chuck E. Cheese. First of all, it would take a lot more than a pencil to get me inside of a Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) Second of all, you know that wouldn't work. Why? Because I gave him that money. He said, no, you don't. I don't owe you anything. You gave this to me out of my own resources. And that's what this scripture is saying. Who's ever given a gift to God that he should be repaid? It means you've never beaten God to the spot and helped him out with something and then said, okay, now you, you owe me one. But that's what we like to do, isn't it? We like to string together some days or some weeks or some years of righteousness so we can pull that righteousness out in a moment of need and say, I really need this request. And so look at all I've done for the last two weeks, the last six months, the last you know, five years of my life. You look at all I've done and I feel like you owe me one. We try to get on top of God to put him under our foot, to put him under our authority and under our power. But it doesn't work like that. Because we've, we've already mentioned it in the song. It's his breath that fills up our lungs. That, that takes us back to the very beginning, to Adam and Eve. Before there was an Adam and Eve, God had created this beautiful, majestic, amazing world. And there was yet to be humanity in it. And so what does the scripture say he does? He takes dust, he takes dirt, and he forms it together. He forms it into Adam. And then the scripture says he breathes his breath on the dirt. And Adam comes to life. It was God's breath that brought Adam into existence. And it's still God's breath that brings us into existence. It's still his breath that fills up our lungs. You're like, no, it's not. It's oxygen. No, listen, there was oxygen before you had lungs. And there will be oxygen after you had lungs. It's not oxygen that's inflating your life right now. It's the very breath of God. In fact, let's just do a little experiment this morning. Let's just have some, some, uh, some breathing right now. So just take a deep, deep breath with me. And breathe it out. Come on, this is great. So I'm feeling, already feeling better about the day. Come on, some of you are not participating. It's beautiful. Keep doing it. Gift 
gift, 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 gift. You didn't earn one of those breaths. It's not by your power that your lungs inflate and deflate. Everything that you have is a gift of grace that started a long, 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 long time ago when God breathed his breath into Adam. It's still his breath that fills up our lungs. We live and breathe his grace. But it's not just the grace of God. What does the scripture say in 2 Corinthians 13, 14? It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul is obsessed with the phrase, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can find it in almost every single one of his letters. And I think the reason he was obsessed with that phrase is because he knew what the grace of Jesus Christ tasted like. He knew what it was to know grace deep within his being. You remember how his story started? He was Saul, the persecutor of the church, breathing out murderous threats on people who followed and believed in Jesus because he believed Jesus was nothing more than a false teacher who got lifted up inappropriately by some of his followers and ended up crucified and dead. So it drove Paul crazy when these people said that Jesus was resurrected and that Jesus should be worshipped. And so he started persecuting the church. He started harming the church. Started throwing people into prison, breathing out these murderous threats. And Acts chapter 9 tells the story of how Paul is on his way to put more people in prison, do more harm to people who consider themselves followers of Jesus. But he sees this bright and blinding light. And the glory of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears to him. And Paul falls over and ends up blind. Now, how do you think Paul felt in that moment when he sees this glory of Jesus? One, he realizes that he's wrong. He's been wrong the whole time. He was confident with every last fiber in his being that Jesus was nothing more than a common teacher that people misunderstood and falsely worshipped. But now obviously he's wrong. Jesus had been raised from the dead. Jesus was more than just another teacher. And not only was he wrong, not only did he miss the Messiah, he had been persecuting and harming people who had gotten it right. And now Jesus is revealing his glory to him along this road. And not only is Jesus revealing his glory, he has taken Paul's persecution of the church very, very personally because that's how he, uh, that's how he responds to Paul. Paul, why are you persecuting me? And so you know how Paul had to be terrified. I got it wrong. And not only did I get it wrong, I harmed the people who got it right. I missed the Messiah, and now I'm going to be judged. This glorious one is going to give me what I deserve. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, in fact, brings him into the family and then says, not only are you in the family, you're going to help build the family. Paul knew grace, and he knew the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we think about grace, we usually go to the story of the prodigal son, and we're going to do that today. So I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. We're actually going to read the second half of the story. Because we usually think of the 
story of the prodigal son, that first half of the story as the story of, of grace. But there's grace in the second half too. If it's your first time to church in a long time or you can't remember the story of the prodigal son off the top of your head, just a little quick review. One man had two sons. The youngest son, he got tired of living on, living on the farm and so he said to his father, hey, why don't you just give me my inheritance early and I'm going to just live on like you were dead. And So the father does and the son, he goes off and he spends it, as the scripture says, on wild living. He just wastes all of it. Spends it on prostitutes. He just does whatever he wants. Well, he eventually runs out of money. He doesn't have any friends. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have a home now. And he doesn't have a job. And the job that he does get is he feeds pigs, which is not that demeaning in our culture, but in their culture would have been the lowest of the low. And not only is his job feeding pigs, but he's so hungry that he's actually jealous of what these pigs are eating. And so the scripture says that he comes to his senses one day. And he realizes... They have the servants back on my father's farm. They've got more than enough food. They've got a place over their head. So I'm going to go back home. But I can't go back home as a son. I've already burned that bridge. So I'm going to go home and just see if my father will let me be one of the servants. And so that's what he does. And you remember the story. He goes back home and his father receives him. But not as a servant. He receives him back as a son. They start this massive celebration. And we usually, when we think of grace, we think of that story of the prodigal son. But there's a second half to the story. Luke chapter 15, verse 25. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. What he's saying is, you gave the the, the fattened calf, that calf that we have been saving up for a special occasion to have this massive feast. You gave it to him, and you never even offered me one of the leftovers. To celebrate with my friends. Verse 30. But when this son of yours came. Who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him. Son you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead. And is alive. He was lost. And is found. So the reason this older brother is so angry is he sees his younger brother being celebrated in a way that he will never be celebrated. You know why? Because he does the right things. He didn't jack up his life. And he's not going to. He's going to be right there next to the father where he was supposed to. And it made him bitter that his brother did the wrong thing And get all the celebration. Why? Because he earned that celebration. That's what he's thinking. He earned that fattened calf. All his days waking up early in the morning and going out into the field and organizing the servants and taking care of the crops and planting the seeds and bringing them in and going into town and doing the business. He earned that celebration. The brother didn't earn it, he squandered it. He was mad. Because he had earned 
His brother just got to receive it. But look at what the father says to him in verse 31. Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Parenthetical, one of the things that the father is saying to the older son is, listen, all of this, that's all going to be yours one day. I'm not giving my younger son another inheritance. This used to be yours and his, but he took his and he wasted it. Now it's what's left is all yours. So if you are on the edge right now and you're thinking about going prodigal son, you're thinking about leaving the safety of home because there's some kind of sin, there's some kind of lifestyle out there that's appealing and you feel compelled to, you need to know that there is always grace. But grace does not restore to you back it exactly the way it was before you left. Grace will bring you through just like the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus went into the grave. He didn't come back, to the li- come back to life in the exact same way that he went into the grave. He went through death into a resurrected life. When you receive grace, you come through with grace. The way your life is right now may not be the way it is when you return back home after you go prodigal son. There are very real consequences to bad decisions. And most of my scars remind me of that fact. There are consequences to the things that we do. There is always grace. But grace may not restore to you the situation that you are exactly in right now. But the other thing he's saying is he's saying to his son, look at it so closely with me in verse 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And look at this, all that is mine is yours. See, the brother, he thinks he's earned all this. He thinks he's earned this inheritance by his faithfulness. Where the father is saying, all that is mine, this is my house, these are my fields, these are my flocks, these are my servants, all that is mine, I'm going to give to you. See, the brother... The older brother has received just as much grace as the younger brother. It's all grace from the same father. It's just taking some different expressions. This is one of the dangers about being a follower of Jesus more than just a few weeks is it's so easy to start feeling like an insider. And once you feel like an insider, you've been here since the beginning. And if you're there in the beginning, you carry yourself with like this authority and this expertise and this platform like I deserve to be here. But listen, there's only one person who deserves to be in the kingdom of Jesus and that's Jesus. Everybody else was invited in by grace. So nobody should feel like an insider today. We're all outsiders who got brought in. We don't earn this because you can't earn grace. And you need to know and I need to know grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the last thing that he says back in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, and the love of God. One of my favorite things 
about Bayou City Fellowship is we are doers here. We have some action-oriented people and so many of you, in fact, most of you, week in and week out in unseen places are serving people and, and doing incredible things in the name of Jesus. And so the other day I just sat down for literally about 30 seconds and wrote down as many things as I could just think of off the top of my head that people here at this church are doing through the week. Not that the church is doing, but the people of the church are doing. Here are some of the things that are happening week in and week out among the people and through the people of Bayou City Fellowship. Uh, The homeless are served. Single moms are provided for and loved on. Refugees are welcomed. Children are welcomed into foster homes. Brothels are confronted and prayed against. Prostitutes given a way of escape. Muslims are engaged with the gospel. Bible studies are led at work. Bible studies are led at home. Bible studies are led at coffee shops. Books are authored. Music is written. At-risk children are educated. Teenagers are challenged and held accountable. Water wells are funded and drilled in Africa. Orphans and widows are cared for in India. Underground churches are funded in East Asia. The hurting and the broken are counseled. Children are adopted. We could go on and on and on. That's just happening week in and week out here at Bayou City Fellowship. But, you know, doing things for God is not the same thing as being loved by God. In fact, sometimes it's easier to do things than it is to be loved. That may be the way your home is right now. You have the people in the home and you're busy and you're doing a lot of things, but maybe there's not that much love there. And when was the last time you just reminded yourself that you were loved by God just for free with no strings attached? That's hard. But we see this, look up at uh, there in Luke 15, verse uh, verse 8. It says, Or what woman, this is Jesus telling a story, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And where she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus is saying, this is how God feels about people. He values them the same way this woman valued this coin. When you think about a coin, a nickel is always a nickel, a dime is always a dime, a dollar is always a dollar. It always has the same value. Jesus is comparing us and showing us the way that God feels about us, that he values us. And he values you apart from how you think about yourself. You know, he's not interested really in your estimation of yourself. He is secure and confident in your value. But we like to, we like to offer that value to him, don't we? When we feel valuable, we let him know it. When we feel valueless, we let him know it. But he has already determined your value. He determined it before you were born. And you'll carry that same value all the days of your life apart from what you're able to do. He also values us apart from what anybody else thinks about us. Which is hard because that's what we spend most of our time thinking about. How do I appear in your eyes? How do you appear in my eyes? 
And what can I do to, to elevate that value and that worth? I read a book uh, probably about 10 years ago, and the author just used this really simple illustration. You have a boat, and in the boat, it's sinking, and you have a doctor and a lawyer and a teacher inside the boat, and you come along, and you're able to save one of those people, but you can only save one. So the dilemma is, who are you going to save? The doctor, the lawyer, the teacher. So I give you five seconds to think about it, and you decide who you're going to take with you and uh, let the others perish. Uh, doctor, lawyer, teacher. How you mean? Show of hands. Uh, we have all three here among us today, so somebody's going to get offended, but it's going to be fine. How many of you would say the doctor? He can help people serve in hospitals, good. How many of you say the lawyer? The lawyer getting no love. If your spouse is a lawyer, raise your hand right now. No, lawyers, no love. You know, nobody likes lawyers until you need one, and then they're very important. How many of you say the teacher? Yeah. See, the crazy thing is, is that we all know that we do this with each other. We all know that we're sizing one another up. And we get trapped in this cycle with that knowledge that always people are assigning to you some kind of arbitrary value, high or low, better or worse. We all know that about each other. So we get stuck in this trap of trying to elevate that value in somebody else's life to prove to them if you're going to value Anybody, it should be me because I do this or because I say this or because I think this or because I act this way or because I live in this place or I do these things. But most of the scars that we carry this morning come from when we were trying to appear in somebody's eyes, maybe something different than we really were. But God loves you apart from anybody else's estimation of you. He doesn't send out a survey of the people around you and ask, how should I feel about this person? No, he's confident of it. He doesn't need anybody's help, not even our help. And our value is anchored in him alone because we are loved. And so in the midst of your doing this week, in the midst of your striving, remember, you are loved. And so in that spirit today, I want to read some scripture together. I know we already did this, but I feel like it's appropriate to end this way. So why don't you stand with me? You're going to see some scripture on the, the screen and from the Psalms. We're just going to read this together out loud. And as we read it, I want you to hear and believe that you are loved. Apart from what you do, apart from how you act, you are loved. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
to him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The love of God be with you all. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would drill those things deep into our heart. I pray that we would know them well. I pray that we would not doubt them. So we're not asking for any big signs, for you to prove your love, for you to prove your grace, for you to prove your presence. We're just asking for a reminder this morning, deep in our soul. In Jesus' name.